You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. We, we established that Jesus was a conscious being. I said that was a big move. And that he was intelligent. And what he was most conscious of was being a being in the Trinity before there was creation and the confidence that what the Trinity began will come to its completion and its telos and and that it's from that that he lived. And we also said that we all live out of our intuitions. Remember last night we talked about the four guys in the airplane, the smartest guy in the world, you know? Well, I come from a a family of policemen and law enforcement, uh, kind of all over my family. And... uh, um, and also from Orange County, California. And I don't know if any of you have been out there, but you know we name our freeways. We hate them so much, we name them. You know, see, so I have the 405, the San Diego Freeway. Well, there's one that goes through Orange County. Uh, it's, the, it's California 22, but we call it the Garden Grove Freeway. All, because it goes through Garden Grove. All along this freeway grow these really high bushes called oleanders. I mean, they get really high, 20, 30 feet high. Really thick, great place for cops to hide, right? California Highway Patrol love hiding behind oleanders. So this cop is hiding behind an oleander with his speed gun out, and he sees out of the corner of his eye this car full of really, like, just stereotypical white-haired old ladies, right? Got it. Just stereotypical white-haired old ladies, car full of them. And he looks at his radar gun, and they're puttering along at 22 miles an hour. And he thinks, there's got to be something wrong. So he puts on his lights, pulls out, pulls him over, and he gets up to the window of the car, and he looks in, and this old lady looks out at him with this kind of righteous indignation and goes, what's wrong, officer? I wasn't doing anything wrong. And the cop looks at her and goes, well, yeah, but do you realize how slow you're going? And she just goes, yes, sir, officer, I was going exactly the speed limit, 22 miles an hour. And the cop, like you, kind of chuckles like, oh, come on, whatever, and just he's going to walk back to his car. And as he's walking back to his car, he notices out of the corner of his eye that the three old ladies in the back seat are just like white as ghosts and obviously just panic-stricken. So he walks back to the driver and he says, are you sure you guys are okay? And the old lady says, oh, yeah, relax, officer. We just got off Route 187. (laughs) So you see... What one intuitively thinks is real (laughs) is what actually guides one's behavior. And so this morning we read this passage in Mark 4 about the storm, and we read it again this evening. And so I want to take what we've done so far and build on it by helping us to take Jesus serious about the nature of reality. Dallas Willard was asked once, to give one word for Jesus. He thought for a moment and said, relaxed. And that's interesting, right? Like, why pick a posture of all the words he could have picked? Like, why pick an attitude? You know, one could have rightly said a word like love or wisdom or authority or powerful or holy But Jealous chooses this word relaxed. And what I want to say is that there was something underneath that 
that funded that relaxedness and that, and that it was precisely his confident relationship with his father. Last night, I mentioned the scene from the upper room where Jesus went and got the pail of water and took off his outer cloak and, washed, and took a towel and wrapped it around his waist and washed the disciples' feet. And his specific reason for doing that is that he, know, he knew he had come from the Father and that he was returning to the Father. That's what funded, right? That's what shaped his imagination. And this is what I want you to think with me about tonight. But actually, I really don't want you to think that much. It's been a long day. I don't want you to really try to hear this tonight cognitively. I really hope tonight you would hear it imaginatively and that you would hear it more evocatively, not just like sort of content to take in. But just try to imagine Jesus. Like what, like what animated his being? What, what guided him? How, where did these words come from? His manner of being in the world. And for us, of course, much of our life is animated by fear. Even much of what we see in our news feeds every day, if you just look at it at all carefully, underlying it will often be fear. And anxiety disorders, as you probably know, are reaching epidemic levels so the social psychologists tell us. And affecting now as many as some people think 20% of Americans. I often teach in undergraduate classes in universities. For years I taught a course on spiritual formation and we would have the, the students do journals and you could hardly read them, they were so sad. I mean, you just can't imagine the heart space of the average 18 to 22 year old today the level of depression and anxiety and just the, like the deep, really hard stuff they live with. But I want to suggest to you this, the, tonight that this story is the conceptual framework for why we are actually always safe in the kingdom of God and why scriptures like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack no good thing. He leads me beside uh, quiet waters and restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. He anoints my head with oil. Therefore, my cup overflows. Now, let's just take those two, two little evocative ideas. He anoints my head with oil, and my cup overflows then in the washing of my friend's feet. Because I'm rich in love, I'm rich in mercy, I'm rich in kindness, I'm rich in long-suffering. I'm like a billionaire in patience, right? A billionaire could give you five bucks and not miss a thing. Well, what if your life was so animated with that kind of Psalm 23 reality that just out of the overflow of our life naturally was goodness? Surely goodness will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, you know, that was David's lived reality. That wasn't mere poetry. It is beautiful poetry, but it's not merely poetry. It was his lived reality. Or what if Psalm 139 is real? Um, 
I knit you before you were known, or I know you were knitted in your mother's womb, right? Picture Psalm 139. It's not coming to my mind here readily. But you were knit together in your mother's womb, that God knew you before you were born. Now, liken that just a little bit to Jesus coming from the councils of the Holy Trinity and knowing that he was returning there and how that funded this peaceful, relaxed kind of presence in the world even when being kissed on the cheek in betrayal or even being threatened by bullying Roman governors, right? There was a kind of life there. Well, the backdrop of this story is that these kind of vicious pop-up storms with really fierce winds and high waves were really common on the Sea of Galilee. And just, you have to picture this really small fishing boat type thing with waves many times higher, like waves as high as that beam. And they're in a little fishing boat. And these kind of storms would pop up commonly. And so the boat, the boat not only seemed to sometimes be overwhelmed by these high cresting waves crashing on it, but sometimes actually was overwhelmed by it. And I think this is a story revealing and demonstrating how it is that we can live life in the kingdom of God as Jesus said to do. Come follow me. Live your life, as we've been saying, in the kingdom of God. And that there's the, the, the kind of the intent of this story in some sense points to the final consummation. It points to this final um, telos being hit, uh, this bullseye being hit. Tim Keller commenting on this passage said that it's as if Jesus is saying something like this. Someday I'm going to calm all storms. I'm going to still all waves. I'm going to destroy destruction. I'm going to break brokenness. I'm going to kill death. And one day I will consummate a kingdom where brokenness and suffering will be completely and finally undone. That's sort of the theological message. As Jesus stands up, rebukes the wind and the waves, that, that's, that's a sign pointing to the completion of what God intended. But in terms of a spiritual metaphor, in terms of our own spirituality, looking at the passage that way, a storm is anything overwhelming. It's anything that makes us feel like we're sinking and that God has lost control. It's anything we go through that causes us to wonder, if God loves me, why are you letting me go through this? Why are you letting me die? I wrote a blog this week um, taking the last words of Dallas Willard, my friend Gary Black happened to be sitting at Dallas's bedside. He'd given Jane and Becky a little break to go home. That's his wife and daughter to go home and get some rest. It was late at night, you know, I don't, the middle of the night. And so my friend Gary was at Dallas's bedside and they both had kind of fallen asleep. But if you've ever been with somebody who's dying, you know, you sometimes wake up thinking something's going on here. And Gary kind of woke up and heard Dallas take a, his final breath and say, thank you. How does somebody die of pancreatic cancer? Like about the worst cancer you can possibly get with thank you on their lips. And then I heard this week from Eugene Peterson's son that among Eugene's very, very last words were, let's go. And all week I've just been, I've been hearing like this rhythm in my mind of, Thank you. Let's go. Thank you. Let's go. 
thank you. Let's go. Right? Like what? Again, just, you know, what funds that kind of thing? That, what, what kind of imagination? What do you suppose is the interstate of the person who dies from pancreatic cancer with their last words being thank you? Or we wonder, why am I utterly helpless here? Why am I in this storm, this illness, problem children, problem parents, a problem marriage, a problem job, or problems with money, or feeling like I'm in darkness or loneliness or having this sort of debilitating anxiety? A storm is anything that causes us to ask God who seems asleep or distant at the time. It's anything that makes us want to ask, where are you? What are you doing? Because what we think is, surely he knows what's going on. Or else why would his friends have asked him, don't you care about this situation? Can't you see we're perishing? Well, that Greek word perish means we're being destroyed here. Can't you see these big waves? They are literally going to kill us. I mean, I can remember when I was, you know, middle teenager, I don't remember about how old, I don't know, I could have been even 12, you know, out with a boogie board because I grew up in Orange County. And, you know, we all had like our thing, like, you know, a, a face of a wave, like double head. That gets a little bit intimidating. You see waves bigger than that. And at some point, most kids are a little bit intimidated, right? There's like a certain size where you're like, I don't know if I can handle this. And, and something like that is going on with them. And they're wondering, don't you care? Can't you see what's happening? You you're asleep in the back of the boat. But awoke with such questioning, Jesus stands up, he rebukes the wind and the sea, saying to them, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then they began to wonder, from where does such authority come? Or Jesus saying to a leper, be clean. Or to a demon, come out. Or to a dead body, rise up. And what I think his first friends are learning and that I covet us to learn is that the person in the sleep, asleep in the back of the boat was the second person of the Holy Trinity, the creator Lord, the architect, and the repairman. And that this is what they were being invited into. So in terms of our own formation here, I think the invitation in this story is to help us find confidence, a kind of sureness or certainty that, that comes from experience. Not confidence that's, you know, kind of ginned up religiously, not confidence that is, you know, like I said, mostly mental. But the, again, the kind of sureness or certainty that comes from, I've, I've been through this, I, I, I get this, and I actually can be relaxed or calm in this. And what I picture here is something childlike. Like if you have to sort of guilt yourself into this or if we have to sort of shame ourselves into this, like I know I should be relaxed here, but I'm not. I know I should be calm here, but I'm not. That doesn't work. We need to find a childlike way to kind of experiment our way into this. That this confidence is actually, I think, grounded in the kind of growth that comes from curiosity. Like, what if you could, uh, you know, it, maybe if you don't hear anything else tonight but this, what if you could exchange guilt and shame for a childlike curiosity? 
So instead of guilting yourself or shooting yourself or auditing yourself because I'm angry in this situation and I like I know I shouldn't, what if you just got curious like a child and just wondered, oh, what's what's going on here? Like what's what's funding this anger? What what underlies this anger? And you can actually talk to God. And you can talk to him about it and wonder with him, you know, what, what's, what's actually going on here? And so then we become something like the old masters used to talk about the athletes of God who practiced themselves into a state of being that they didn't have before practicing themselves. So I think I told you I played baseball in college. Uh, I didn't? Okay, so I did. Uh, and being from Southern California, a baseball hotbed, it meant that I played with people who are literally now in the Hall of Fame. And so since this World Series, a little baseball illustration. Uh, if you were to go to Dodger Stadium tonight, uh, and I don't know Dodger Stadium specifically, and it's an old stadium, so maybe not true, but in most modern stadiums, and probably true in Dodger Stadium, uh, underneath the stands are batting cages. And if you were to go under even a Major League Stadium batting cage, do you know what you'd find? A T. Like your four-year-old used. A T. And a ball on there. Whack! Somebody making $20 million a year hitting a baseball from a T. Whack! Why? What's going on? They're practicing something. Like, where are my hips? Are they flying out too soon? Where are my shoulders? What are my hands doing in the hitting area? Or sometimes you see this in public. If you get there early enough, you get to batting practice. Again, you'll find some 25-year-old stud, you know, making 30 grand a year for hitting a baseball. And you'll find a coach down on one knee with a, a, a white bucket, like a paint bucket of balls, and doing what we call soft toss. And just tossing a ball up, whack, into the side of the batting cage. Whack, what's going on? They're practicing, like you can, you have, unless you've lived this life, you have no idea how hard it is to hit a major league slider. I mean, about six feet from the plate, it looks like it's going to be here. And then in a split second, it's there. And you're trying to hit a round ball with a round bat. You ever even just thought how hard that is? Just to hit a round ball with a round bat squarely. And when it's moving, it's like crazy hard. And so there's, there's a saying, right? You can't hit and think at the same time. You have to embody it. It has to be something that's embodied in you, and that's what they're doing. They're training off the spot so that on the spot, when it's late innings and a couple of people on base and two outs and you're up there, you can't think and hit at the same time. You're just reacting, because I forget now what it exactly it is, but in the, the 90 feet it takes from the ball to leave a pitcher's hand across the plate, I know is a split second. I know it's less than a second, but I don't know exactly what it is. So you, can, you literally cannot think and hit at the same time. But what you do is you embody these realities in you. Or think of a dancer. Or I think of Nathan. Ah, it's probably been years since Nathan thought about a bar chord. It's just embodied in him now. But I can guarantee you when he was learning to play guitar, the first few times he tried to play a, ball, a bar chord, strings buzzed. And I'll bet he remembers the first time he ever played a bar chord and all the strings rang out true. So he had embodied something and it became sort of natural to him. That's your vision. 
not guilt, not shame. It's, it's, it's a childlike curiosity married to that kind of childlike passion that a gymnast has or a ball player or a musician or an artist. No one had to tell, I was always the first person. I, I did all my classes early in the day. I'd go up to the cafeteria, get something to eat, and by about one o'clock, I'm out at the baseball office, getting the keys out to the shed, setting up the jugs, pitching machine. Long before anybody else is out there, I was out there practicing. Why? Nobody was making me do it. I had a dream of being a major league baseball player from the time I was four or five years old until the time the scouts told me I wasn't gonna make it. See what I'm saying? Something funded my behavior. Not guilt, not shame, not I ought to work out. I mean, you can't tell now, but at the time, I weighed 165 pounds, couldn't gain an ounce if I tried. The scouts would tell me, you know, you need to gain some weight, you need some stronger. I would do anything. I'd work out in the gym, drink protein shakes. I couldn't gain an ounce. But I did all that not out of guilt. Do you see what I'm saying? Not, of a, not out of a weird religion. I did it out of a childlike curiosity. Like, oh, what my top hand is doing in the hitting area actually makes a difference. It was the curiosity to me. And so, you know, we would devour videotape. Because in that moment when you're just trying to do it, you think you're doing it right. You really do. And we're not always aware. So make a nice analogy out of this. In dancing or playing guitar or hitting a baseball, we think we know what our body's doing in space, but we're often wrong about it. And we used to have a saying, not that you can tell I'm talking about the 70s, because in the 70s we would say the tape don't lie. I don't know what they say these days. The, the thumb drive don't lie or something, I don't know. But in my day it was the tape don't lie because you could actually see what your top hand was doing in the hitting area. And we would just again be massively curious about this. Well, what if this could become our spirituality? where we just have this very childlike curiosity. You know, we're like that little girl who just can't stop practicing this one ballet move until she gets it right. And then she gets it right and she's lived into this dream. So then Jesus asks them these questions. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now that's an important little wrinkle. Have you still no faith? That still means that they did have a growing faith in Jesus. And they had heard powerful teaching. They'd seen him drive out demons. They'd seen him perform healings. But when put in a situation beyond their control, that faith turned to fear. And so these are really good questions. Why are you so afraid? Why have you still no faith? And for us, maybe we can think of times when we're facing a situation that causes us to be filled with fear. And Jesus asks us then the same question, why are you so afraid? And you just need to notice what's the answer. <coughs> now, I told you I got converted at 19. I'm 62. And I can put my hand over my heart and say for 43 years unwavering, I've been a devoted follower of Jesus. I don't mean perfect. I just mean I have been devoted to him seriously for 43 years. And in the last year or two, I've been having to discern what do I do with this last little era of my life? What do I do with the last 8, 10, 12 years, whatever I have of a working life? I mean, fortunately, thank God I'm in good health. 
And so in the last few months, I've had to discern retiring as a pastor. And it was super hard. I'm not a big journaler. I, I, I say that to my own shame. I just never have been. But I do every month when I go do my retreat day away and see my spiritual director, I do journal on those days. And I began to look back a few weeks ago at my journals, and I've been processing this for two years. And I had to ask myself, well, what is it that you're afraid of? Or something like that. And my point is, this journey never ends. Whether you've been a Christian two months or 20 years or 40 years, this journey never ends. And what I, had to, what I surprisingly discovered is that a real big bunch of my identity was wrapped up in being a pastor. Like, I couldn't see myself not being a pastor. It felt like a death of some sort or something, and I had to, like, just face that down. But again, I didn't face it down in guilt and shame and all that. I faced it down in love. Well, that's curious. I didn't know I had my identity wrapped up in a role. Hmm. Wonder what's going on there. And then like a child, just like that same kid who would wonder what's my top hand doing in the hitting area, I just began to wonder, oh, hmm, I wonder what's going on here. Is there something that I'm trying to be in control of and that letting go of this will be difficult? And I just, I had to wrestle it down. And I, I'm, I'm just saying to you that these things are going to, these storms are going to pop up all the time. And they always challenge our faith. They always or often, you know, provoke us to some sort of growth. And that's why I'm saying so much to banish guilt and shame and oughts and shoulds and religion and all that and make this childlike make it joyful, know how much God loves you. Like, like, I just love seeing all the toddlers around here. And who of you who has a toddler, you know, a 10-month-old, and they're pulling themselves up on a coffee table for the first time, you know, and everybody goes, look, 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 look. You know, like if you've got some friends over at your house, look, 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 she's pulling herself up. And then you go, oh, God, my God, she's going to try to take a step. And she tries to take a step, and she falls. And everybody in the room goes, what a stupid kid. What a moron. Right? No, what do you do? You all go, oh, my God, that was so charming. Did you see her? Her eyes were like this big, and she took like two steps, and it was cool. Well, look at me. What if your father's like that with you? What if when he sees me wrestling with an identity crisis, he doesn't go, what a jerk? What if he goes, look at my kid, trying to work it out. He'll pull himself up on the coffee table again. And by next week, he'll take some steps. But look at that. That's my boy right there. He's trying to work this out. He's trying to find what's real. Trying to find his balance. You know, trying to find some spiritual coordination here. And what for many people is a difficult time in life. What does it mean to be old? You know, when I was 23 and I started my first church, it was full of reckless abandon. Debbie and I didn't have any kids. We were newly married. It was just Debbie and I and God and fun and starting churches and healing the sick and just, you know, just having a great time. I had my whole life in front of me. Well, it's just weird when you know I've only got maybe eight, ten 12 years of this sort of vitality in front of me. I mean, I don't know, but you know what I mean? That's just weird. 
Like you only go through that once in your life. Are you feeling me here? So you can't really prepare for it. It just sort of hits you. And I, I wasn't, I didn't see it coming. But forced to stop having four jobs and just have two or three, um, I, I had to like face it down and it's okay. And, and I, I want you to think that that is actually the view of your father. Like, oh, look at her. She's trying to really figure out why this person pushes her buttons. Look at her go. She's just wrestling with me and learning what it is to love your neighbor. Look at her. She's trying to love her enemy. Holy crap, right? Like, look at her. She's really trying to do it. This is what I think it's actually like. We've made it into something religious. We've made it into something shameful or guilt or whatever. So I don't know sometimes why my faith is so small. I want it to be stronger. I want to be more consistent. I want to have complete confidence during the big storms in life. But these feelings can't be forced. They have to be the overflow of a genuine personal experience. That's why, are you still so afraid? And so we don't wallow in guilt. We just seek the real answer to the question because Jesus is always in reality. See, I came to grips with this when I, could, when I faced, when I discovered the reality that, man, I have a big part of my identity wrapped up in being a pastor. See, Jesus is in what's real. And when it, it's when I could see that reality that I met Christ there. Jesus is always in the reality. Jesus is not in pretending or avoiding or hiding. So the sleeping Jesus in this story tells us that God is present. He's just not always present the way we want. And that he sometimes seems to take his real long time in the midst of storms. He lets them come. He lets them rage. He lets the boat start to sink before he does anything. But when he does stand up and do, does something, last idea here, they react like most people do, by the disciples, by saying, who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Oh, well, he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the creator of the wind and the waves. Remember what I told you, what lies behind material reality? Personhood. And the person who spoke it into existence is capable of saying, be calm, be still. So, you know, you kind of wonder, what did they expect Jesus to do? Did they hope that he would get up sort of sleepy and lend a hand bailing water out of the boat? You know, what were they expecting? Or that he would say a prayer that God would somehow spare them through the storm? Well, whatever it is that they wanted or expected Jesus to do was exceeded by what Jesus actually did. And according to their logic, I say this sort of playfully, according to their logic in this story, the only thing worse than having a storm threatening to kill you outside of your boat is having God in your boat. Apparently, that's more panicky than even the storm. Like, who is this guy? And so they caught a glimpse of the power and the holiness, the sovereignty and the authority of Christ. And they knew now what they were dealing with. These guys were on a learning curve. They were constantly pulling themselves up to a coffee table. And they were learning that the living God, the creator, the controller of all creation was in their midst. Later, um, John celebrates in the preface to his gospel 
In the beginning was the Word, the creator and master of the sea, light, sky, earth, and ocean, water in its place. It's all good. It's all very good. And what John wants us to know is that it's that Christ who tabernacles with us. So maybe Dallas is right. Maybe relaxed is a really great adjective for Jesus. But I think this story invites us to wonder, how do we grow to such an inner life? And of course, it's Jesus who taught and practiced a life of peace and joy in the knowledge of God's complete nearness and care. And that he offered that life to his disciples as well. So I say this, it's sort of embarrassing to say it, but it's true, so I'll say it. I don't know, for years and years and years, because of the, I think, mostly the influence of Dallas and probably comes from reading The Divine Conspiracy 20 years ago, I've just worked with this idea for 20 years. I'm always safe in the kingdom of God. And I'm not kidding. It was only about six months ago that it hit me, and so are you. Now, why is that such a big deal for me? Because I'm a perfectionist. I'm a recovering perfectionist. And most perfectionists are what? Fixers. Like, it's hard for me to even just see that paper on the floor, to be honest. Because <laughs> something says to me, it's out of order. I should pick it up. And someone left a cup there. And it's actually, it's kind of irritating. Um, so, but you see, the world's better for me if I just do this. And it was so freeing that my son, who kind of struggles with adult life, he's in the care of another. My wife, who struggled with cancer for more than 20 years, she's in the care of another. It's not just me who's safe in the kingdom of God. You're safe in the kingdom of God. And can you see how that could begin to produce a relaxed sort of confidence? not an anxious, perfectionistic fixer who has to pick everything up or every person up and fix them. So why? I mean, I think I'm doing good, but what am I often doing? I'm making myself feel okay. Because as a perfectionist fixer, you know, you can't stand when somebody or something's out of place. And of course, Jesus is just never like that. And this has just been such a big part of my own journey since 1991 when I really started pursuing this notion of my own formation into Christ. It's just been such a big deal uh, in my own growth towards such a, that kind of an inner life that Jesus really did model what it meant to live in God's complete nearness and care. And it was such a life that lay at the heart of Jesus's own spirituality. And so I think it's probably from hearing about Jesus through Peter and others and from experiencing the Spirit himself that Paul learned the life that he wrote about in 2 Corinthians 4 where he said, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. And so tonight I said I wanted you to hear this sort of evocatively, not so much intellectually. And what I want you to hear tonight as we're done is... Um, and you might want to just close your eyes and sit with this for a minute. I just want you to hear peace. Be still. Peace. Be still. 
in the words of one famous writer. Have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have laboriously accomplished your daily task, go to sleep in peace, for God is awake. Peace. Be still. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Peace, be still. For Jesus said, come unto me, and you will find rest for your soul. Peace, be still. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.